there, and welcome to a brand new episode of my show, The Break with Father Roderick. Recorded every week for all of you who want to listen, who have the time, or want to be entertained. And, of course, a very special thank you to my patrons who make this possible without any annoying advertisements. So in this episode, we're going to talk about Wednesday, the big surprise hit for Netflix. Why is this show such a mega success for Netflix? Apparently, in viewership, it is uh, right now rivaling Stranger Things, which I don't think anyone saw coming. Uh, of course, uh, Stranger Things has been around for years, so it remains to be seen if if uh, Wednesday will also be a long, longer-lasting hit for for Netflix. But I have some very specific thoughts about why this show is so good and why is it is such a success. We'll also talk about ghost stories um, to stay kind of in the vibe of the Adams family. Should you believe in ghost stories and how do these ghost stories that we have in many different cultures, uh, how do they re- relate to, for instance, the Catholic faith? We'll talk about that in our faith segment. Then I want to give you uh, my review of one of the funniest books I've read this year, and one of the saddest books that I read this year. We'll also talk about um, my (laughs) experiment, I won't qualify it yet, with a do-it-yourself recipe for microwave chips that you make yourself from a potato. Does it work? I'll let you know. And then, of course, we need to talk about one of the biggest technology developments of maybe this entire year, which is ChatGTP. If you're anywhere on social media, if you've been following the news, you must have heard of this uh, revolutionary um, application. I want to talk about how it can be a blessing, but also maybe a curse. All that and more coming up in this week's episode of The Break, so stay tuned. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Let's start off with a little bit of community news. Our Patreon community keeps growing, and this week I want to welcome Ralph Basfeld and Brian Larson to our community. And I think both the both of them have already found their way to our um, uh, Discord community, which is one of the perks that uh, we organized for uh, my monthly supporters. If you want to join the patrons, just take a look at uh, patreon.com slash fatherroderick. I also want to thank Torsten specifically for upping his tier. Um, Some of you uh, are making like New decisions with the 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 uh, towards the end of the year financially. Of course, this is a um, uh, a challenging situation for some of you, and so some of my patrons have t- had to uh, lower their tier. But some of you have also upped their tier, and I can't stress enough how much that is important for for the work that I do. If you uh, want to help me to continue to reach out to uh, this this incredibly um, eager, thirsty audience that is out there that a lot of a lot of people from 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 faith and from my church kind of tend to forget about uh, if you want to help me to be a pastor for these these large crowds that are out there that may never cross the threshold at least not right now of a church but 
still are are hungry for answers, for truth, for beauty, for um, a bit of pastoral help, um, then there is only one way for me to do that next year, and that is if you continue to support me, because I, as you know, am completely 100% dependent on on donations to do to be able to do this work. So if it's within your means, and uh, if you're listening to this, then you may be part of that 5% of listeners, or maybe even less, that are supporting me monthly. But it's also possible that you are part of the 95% of the listeners that don't support me, um, or maybe never gave it a thought because you thought, oh, well, other people can do that. But um, I, I still really need your help. Um, we are, we're not yet able to pay all the bills, so we're cutting into uh, our, our reserve. But um, if, if it's possible for you and you like what I do and you want to help me do it next year as well, then uh, take a look at patreon.com slash fatherodrick. All right, what have I been doing this week? I um, I just finished um, a surgical operation that took most of yesterday, and it was surgery that I have been pushing forward for months. Now, don't worry, it's not anything that has to do with my health, but it was a PC surgical operation. Um for about half a year now, I am the proud owner and the happy owner of an iMac, uh, like a MacBook Air uh, with the, um, what is it, the, the, the Apple one, no, the M- M1 um, uh, processor, which is a, a game changer for the work that I do. That computer is so incredibly fast and versatile. I'm using it to record this show. I'm using it to stream at the same time. I can render things at lightning speed. It's been such an amazing improvement over my previous computer, which was built specifically for the kind of video work that I do. And a couple of years ago, it was really top-notch. We, I did a lot of television work at the time, so I needed something, uh, a computer that was super reliable, very fast, powerful. Um, but, of course, as things go in the computer universe, that usually doesn't last very long. There's always, the moment you buy a computer, then there's already a development that makes the current one obsolete. It is kind of the law of of progress, I guess. And so um, ever since I switched to, or switched back actually to, uh, to Apple, uh, when it comes to computers, I was only using my PC for the occasional video game that doesn't run on the Apple infrastructure. And, uh, and, and even then, I wasn't really using it that much because it was so noisy. Like, it was built almost as a server. At the time when I gave the order for the computer to be built, um, we were doing live shows in the country. So we were <laughs> traveling to parishes, and then we would uh, create a set. And what we wanted was to have a computer that you can then hook up to the internet and th- that we could do live mixing and lower t- tier, lower thirds, not lower tiers, lower thirds and uh, all sorts of uh, like on, on the spot uh, video mixing. And so the computer itself was built as a tank. It was in a server case that is uh, made out of steel. The thing itself weighs 20 pounds or maybe even more. Just the case. And then uh, there is this very heavy-duty 
graphics card, which at the time was top of the line, uh, a, a GTI, a GTX, GTI, <laughs> uh, um, a 1060, an NVIDIA card, um, and also the, the card itself, we, we wanted this computer to be super silent. So in order to, because we were going to use it in a live settings, you don't want to have the hum of a computer in the background when you're uh, trying to do a live show. And so uh, the, the graphics card is, is, has a massive cooler on top of it, which is like twice the, the size of the entire graphics card. It's super heavy. Now, all that was in, inside that big box. And over time, there was a lot of dust that got into the fans and the, the thing was like the case itself had this strange resonating rumble. Whenever I turned it on, um, it started like the metal plating inside was, I don't know, was starting to vibrate. And so it, it would make this noise like... And I was literally using duct tape to try to fix that and I couldn't figure out what to do. Of course, the warranty was already uh, uh, expired, and and I I remembered that I I was very happy with my like my previous PC, like a PC that was about ten years old, which at the time I also had made build, and um, they used a Cooler Master um, housing for that, which I really liked. It was kind of big. There was a lot of air circulation in it inside of it um, it was much lighter because it was plastic and so i was like well what if i put the innards of the new computer or the relatively new computer into the old case the atx case um that is more than 10 years old but still you know looks looks fine to me a pc doesn't have to be uh, beautiful it just has to work it's because it's under the table anyway however I have never done something like that. I've, I've never uh, uh, transplanted the, the entire core of one PC to put it into another case. And then, so I knew that it was going to be a lot of work, especially because of that editing computer being so heavy and so sturdy. Oh man, just, uh, I, I tried to, to um, disassemble it in the past. And I remember it, it just like, almost a hundred screws that I had to unscrew e even to, to get to the to the logic board. But uh, yesterday yesterday morning I woke up and I had the both computers on m the little desk that I have in my bedroom because that's the only place where I don't work during the day. So but it's like the more every morning I wake up and I see just this plethora of of stuff on that table and screws and and graphics i had already uh, um, uh gutted the the old atx uh, case so all the old computer uh, um, ingredient or what how do you call that elements were on on that desk and it was gathering dust and oh so i was like okay i am just going to take this entire day to do this operation i will if necessary, seek help on the internet. I have a vibrant community. I'm sure that there are some people that have experience with the building computers themselves. So if I get stuck, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll find some help, but I will get this done. And so um, I did. And I ultimately succeeded, but it was such a, 
a scary process and so like oh my gosh because the, the motherboard the 10 year old motherboard is still an atx motherboard so it has a certain form factor um the new motherboard is totally different it's made for a different cpu the, the all the uh the, the sockets for the led lights and the the fans and all that is in different in a different location so i couldn't copy any of the layout of the old mother motherboard or logic board to the to the new situation i had to rewire almost everything because the the wiring that was already part of the <laughs> of the of the pc uh, was was tailor made for the old logic board whereas in the new motherboard all the connections were in a, in different places so it was a much much more complicated uh process than i thought but it was also it was really, and I, I'm, I'm very happy I did it ultimately because it was, uh, it was definitely a way for me to train my persistence and my courage. Because I don't know about you, but when a, something that I actually am scared of and I don't really like doing it, um, uh, it creates friction, and and that's why we procrastinate. This is true for everything that we tend to push away. It's usually. The best way to to handle procrastination is not telling yourself that you're lazy or trying all sorts of mind tricks. No, it's, it's just seeking. So, what's the friction? What are you truly afraid of? And <laughs> I think that ultimately, I was just afraid to set fire to my house. <laughs> that if you assemble a PC like that and you you put you, you know turn the thing on that it would explode. And it's probably because I've been watching too many movies where stuff like that happens. I mean, I felt like Marty McFly, <laughs> you know, like dialing up all these things and then standing there with his guitar in front of that huge speaker and then trying to strike a chord and then the entire thing would uh, would blow up. That's kind of what it felt when I had ultimately put everything in the new, or in the, the newer computer in the old case and I, I flipped the switch and I was like, oh, is it going to work? I, I kind of knew that it wasn't going to work. And to my great surprise, it did. Actually, the Windows logo uh, appeared and everything from the first try worked. And it worked so well. The only thing that was fried was one of the fans, which I then just completely took out of the, of the casing. And, uh, and, and the computer is silent and lightweight and it works wonderfully. And so I'm like, I was, I'm still like, I can't believe that it actually worked. Um, and I'm so happy that I did it because I, 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 I think now that I have lost some of that fear that I had for technical things like that. I always told myself that that's not my thing. I'm, I'm a software guy. I'm a, I'm, I'm someone who uses equipment who doesn't fix it. Well, it turns out I'm actually, uh, there's a little bit of, uh, of Doc Brown in me as well, and I just didn't expect that. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl, and that kid sees dead people, and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. This is the segment where I talk about television shows and movies, and uh, I am actually eager 
to watch the Avatar sequel. Um, I even got an invita- invitation from from Disney to go to the premiere. I'm not sure if I will be able to to go there because it's usually in Amsterdam or in the northern part of the country, very far away in the evening. But we'll see. But I'm definitely going to watch it in 3D because it's, it's just I still remember that first Avatar movie and seeing it on not an IMAX but on an equally big theater screen. It was so impressive. I I love big budget, big screen movies like that. So and I I really have faith in James Cameron. I think he's a uh, a masterful director and someone who's even if the entire world tells him that it's not going to work and nobody's going to watch it, he proves time and again that you know he is. He is the master of the box office success, so um, I'm, I'm eager to watch it. Probably will take another week or so, but I'll review it here on the show uh, the moment I've seen it. This was also uh, the, th- the second week and the third episode of Willow, a series that I really enjoy very much. Uh, it has its flaws, um, but... All in all, I think it's a very charming continuation of the, of the original movie, and uh, and hopefully uh, it's it's going to be one of many seasons, and the, and the show will only get better over time. I have faith in uh, in Disney Plus; they're doing a terrific job with uh, a lot of their series. Then we finally got the trailer for Indiana Jones Five. I've been waiting more than half a year for this trailer. I thought we they would show it to us at the uh, uh, Star Wars celebration. Um, in the springtime in uh, in Anaheim, but they didn't. They they did give us Harrison Ford, which was pretty cool. And then John Williams conducting the theme of Indiana Jones. I will never forget that day that I saw two of my heroes, and among many other heroes that I saw, but to actually see Harrison Ford there on on stage and to hear John Williams conducting that epic music, it was amazing and. Um, I was hoping that we would get to see a glimpse of um, of the new movie because they had already wrapped up filming, um, but we didn't get the trailer. We now have it, and I have posted my first reaction on my YouTube channel, so if you want to check it out, either go to youtube.com slash fatherroderick or uh, click on the link in the show notes. Uh, it was fun to do a reaction trailer. I haven't done uh, videos like that in a long, long time. But it's still apparently really is what, what people latch on to and they like to watch. So I'll, I'll continue to do these reaction videos. I'm having a blast recording them. Um, it's always a bit of a challenge to kind of do the setup. So how am I going to put the image in the screen and uh, react to it at the same time? Sometimes you have trailers where you cannot use the audio because, well, with Disney, thankfully, they're very cool with it. But other... Um, other um, uh, what is it? Uh, studios like Paramount and and uh, Warner they are extremely litigious when it comes to fans that are actually only wanting to promote their movie, but for some reason they don't like the fans. So it's it's a bit tricky, but uh, at the same time it always spurs a lot of conversation and people kind of sharing the excitement for uh, for a new story and has a kind of. Um, you could say like an antidote against all the negativity that is now so much part of our internet culture. I think just having these, like, um, 
how do you say that? <laughs> Just the unbridled joy of seeing something that is cool and then being happy about it. I think that is probably what resonates with uh, a lot of people that uh, that want to see those reaction videos. All right, let's talk about Wednesday. Wednesday Adams is, of course, one of the children of the Adams family. Um, a lot of us have grown up with that television show. There have been a couple of movies. And now there is Wednesday, focusing on Wednesday Adams and her time in school. She goes to the Nevermore Academy, and we follow her during her first months at that academy. I had no idea that this series was coming. Um, and at first, I wasn't even that interested in it because I expected it to be just another, um, like, spin-off or variant on what the previous series already did very well. And I I liked The Addams Family, but it was still something that was more geared towards a younger audience, and it didn't really appeal to me until I saw that it would be directed by Tim Burton. And Tim Burton, of course, to me, sounds like the perfect director for for this series uh, because he has that kind of gothic uh, sensitivity like how do you make creepy stuff that is at the same time a bit weird and and also very funny and 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 special and unique there's everything that Tim Burton touches is is unique and is very recognizable as a Tom, Tim Burton um, production I also saw that um, they would bring back um, the, the the same composer, Danny Elfman, that has worked so often with Tim Burton. So that means that they're investing big in the in the quality of this series. Danny Elfman is not cheap. <laughs> if you want someone for that for a television series, that is uh, that is pretty rare uh, to get that kind of quality. And so I did watch the trailer and I was hooked and I couldn't wait for the series to start. So for those of you that uh, uh, want a refresher, haven't seen it. I'm going to be spoiler-free for the rest of this review, but let's first take a listen to the trailer. Uh, that is, of course, if I can convince my little Macintosh to play that not on the screen of my computer, but to play it on my recording equipment. Why is... Uh, <laughs> why is the... The, the preferences menu now so complicated. Is that just me? I don't like what they did to the pre to the uh, the preferences on the new OS. Okay, should work right now. Let's do that again. I don't think it's supposed to to, <laughs> to sound like that. What is happening? Oh my gosh. That's that sounded like a horror movie. That is not what it's supposed to sound like. Okay, Apple, what is going on? Why are you messing up my audio right now? Okay, so let me just lower this and try again. Sorry for the technical issues. No. Oh wow. Okay, so what's going on? Um, maybe this is a hmm a USB problem. I'm not sure. Let me play another video and see if it does the same. Um, mm, 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 mm. Oh yeah, it's definitely <laughs> something has to do with the audio. 
setup or configuration. What can I do? But I can't do anything about this. Oh, well, you'll have to just believe me. <laughs> I cannot play anything on this computer right now. Um, I'll figure it out. Anyway, so why is this series Wednesday such a massive success? Um, I think, first of all, because of the quality of people that they have gathered to make this happen. Of course, Tim Burton, a director, uh, Danny Elfman, the composer, but then also Jenna Ortega, who is this 20-year-old actress who, who plays the, 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 the main character, Wednesday. She is amazing. She is so incredibly good. And I've watched a couple of interviews with her uh, where she talks about how she prepared for this role. And of course, it's she's got some shoes to fill there because uh, the, um, the previous uh, Christina Ricci uh, depiction of, of Wednesday is iconic for a lot of people. And she didn't want to copy that. And at the same time, it had to be kind of recognizable as Wednesday. And so she gave it her own spin. She, she talks in those interviews about how she would, for instance, try to have a certain posture, a certain type of walking. Um, she worked with the hair and makeup department to get it just right, slightly different from the Wednesday that we knew from the from the previous incarnations and still had to be very recognizable. Uh, she actually got fencing lessons because there's some fencing happening with her character and cello lessons. So there's very cool cello music, but she wanted to learn how to play the cello so it would be believable. And she made many other choices. For instance, at one point she was rehearsing a scene or maybe even filming it, and she deliberately did not blink. And then Tim Burton was like, I like this. There's something happening with your eyes. And then she says, well, I just, I didn't blink. And so for the rest of the entire shoot, for the for the series, they've been filming this in was it in Romania or uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe for eight months. Every single take, she did not blink. And it's if you know it, you see it. But if you don't know that that was done on purpose, there is something about a performance. And at first, I couldn't pin it down. And then I saw the interview. I was like, obviously, she's not blinking. That is amazing. Um, so there is a very cool intensity about the way that she plays Wednesday. And there is this super like dry humor, uh, very cynical, very dark, but never malicious. And uh, that that is a, uh, a, I think, main ingredient of the success of this show. She is so incredibly good. Um, and uh, also the interaction with the other characters. So she, she's um, in this school of kind of gifted children or <laughs> slightly weird children. And uh, she has, a, there are a number of classmates that are or classmates or schoolmates that are portrayed. And all of these secondary characters are also very well done. And they have great chemistry with, uh, uh, and chemistry is maybe not the word because if there's something that Wednesday doesn't have, it's chemistry. She's very socially awkward. But the way that contrast with the other kids is is brilliant and works really, really well. And then, to my great surprise, Gwendolyn Christie also has a major role in this series. She's the head uh, master of, of Nevermore Academy, kind of uh, like the Dumbledore, but then differently. And there is a mysterious link with 
the past because her parents, Wednesday's parents, have also studied at that school or and stayed in that in that school. So, uh, and I think that that f- for some reason, Gwendolyn Christie here really works. I mean, she she's been in Star Wars, she's been in Game of Thrones, um, and in some other uh, movies and television shows. And every time, it's like, oh, that. But that's that's typically Gwendolyn Christie. Um, even as Captain Phasma, I felt that she was a little bit out of place. It was, it, it, she's such an imposing person and, and such a recognizable uh, um, actress that I felt that it kind of took me out of, out of the Star Wars universe because she's so recognizable. Um, but here, I was like, this, this is the perfect role for her and she plays it so well. Um, so everything about this is is wonderful. What I also loved is how it, this is shot, not just in terms of cinematography, it's, it's just super high quality. Everything is beautiful. Uh, the sets are gorgeous, the lighting, the colors. It is pure perfection. It's very rare to get a television show at this level of quality visually. But it's also filmed and acted as if it were a silent movie. Very often there is no dialogue and it's very subtle and it's all in the eyebrows and little nudges of the head, especially in uh, Ortega's character. And that whole uh, approach, this stylistic choice to make it look a bit like the old black and white horror movies, um, even back then when there wasn't any audio dub possible and you would just have this guy at the piano doing the <laughs> the music in the background live in the theater. Um, it, it works so well with this genre and it enhances the kind of very peculiar visual style that we, that we associate with the Addams Family. Um, the music by Danny Elfman is fantastic. I love Danny Elfman. Um, and and just to have him score an entire television series is just the best of the best. Um, also, let's talk about the story. I loved what they did. They could have easily turned it into kind of a sitcom-like series where every episode is kind of standalone and it, it, it's usually a, a sequence of, of jokes and funny non-sequiturs. But they, they gave it a good story. It's a mystery thriller. It is a bit of a detective story. Um, you want to know what's going on and what's really happening over there at uh, Nevermore Academy. And, and, and so with Wednesday, Wednesday is kind of the Sherlock Holmes era of this story, and we follow her while she's trying to figure out what's, what's going on. And I, the intrigue totally works. Um, this is not just a detective story. It's also a coming-of-age story. She is entering the next phase of her life, getting to know her schoolmates and trying to relate to all these normal, kind of normal people. They're normies. They're basically the muggles of, of the Adams Family <laughs> universe. And then you've got the kind of the special pe- people, the, the, the kids that turn into werewolves or other monsters at night. And... Uh, the funny thing is, th- so one of the main themes seems to be uh, uh, this this kid, Wednesday, who is a bit of an outcast, and now she is plunged in this universe where everybody is an outcast, and then it turns out that the normies, or the normal people, Christina Ricci, by the way, plays one of those normal people. She has a role, a recurring role in this television series, which is very different from anything she played uh, before 
and it's very well done. Um, she reminded me of the what is the 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 professor uh, with the with the thick glasses in Harry Potter, um, uh, the divination teacher. Anyway, doesn't doesn't uh, come to me right now. But uh, so th- th- it, it's funny to see that in that school where everybody comes from a, a background of being an outcast, then very quickly they establish these normative subcultures where you have to conform to what everybody else is doing and how they behave. And then you can still become an outcast inside that school of outcasts. I, I kind of like that social commentary there. Um, I also, well, speaking of, of uh, Harry Potter, um, another thing that appeals to me tremendously in this television series is that it is kind of a bit of a dark horror version of Hogwarts. You go to a school, there are different groups of pupils and they all have their own, like some of them are werewolves and others are I don't know what. Um, So that's the same thing with Slytherin and Hufflepuff and and, uh, uh, what is it, Um, uh, Gryffindor and then what's the fourth one? Hufflepuff, Gryffindor, Slytherin and... Oh boy, I'm going to make some Harry Potter fans among my listeners so mad. What is the last? Ravenclaw. 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 I did remember. Uh, <laughs> so you have that same that same type of organization in this school. Um, and then they compete. There is uh, there's at one point, there's a day where they have to kind of outmatch each other. And it reminded me of, was it the fourth Harry Potter movie where you have that, all these, these this, this tournament um, the Wizarding Cup tournament or something like that. There, there's a lot of that here too, without it being just a copy of what they did with Harry Potter. But it has that same vibe. And, you know, there's a kid in every one of us who would love to have studied at a school like that. And I think that's why I I like this so much. Um, the sets, by the way, of that Nevermore Academy are amazing. I still don't know if this is a real building or whether they... I think they built it specifically for this show. But I can't tell if, if the entire building is there or whether it's just the outside or a facade. Or, it, it feels like a real school, like a real building. And I maybe it's just like a blend of sets practical sets and and cgi if so it's flawless it's it's totally believable as a real environment um and so is everything else in the series there's nothing that makes you go like oh that looks a little bit wonky or that is kind of cheap clearly filmed at night because they were trying to save uh on on the expenses that this is this is really big budget stuff um, maybe also because they're going to do several seasons and uh, they, they could invest a bit more in the sets knowing that they were going to use this in subsequent years as well. Um, what I think is, is very impressive of this series is how tonally consistent it is. Um, th- it's very hard to pull that off, to do something that is at, at once serious, where there's detec- detective series, uh, mystery, people are dying. Um, here's this coming of age element, uh, kind of like how how do all these people relate? And then there's just the goofy, the kooky stuff, the the over the top acting, and it's so difficult to 
maintain consistency in that tone. But I think that's why Tim Burton is on this project because he is so masterful when it comes to preserving this this kind of same tone of voice where everything kind of blends together so well. The mix is perfect. Not one ingredient is too powerful and there are no like episodes that I haven't watched the entire season yet, but there are, are no filler episodes as far as I've been able to tell. Um, every every scene is just working. It's it's incredible. Um, I love the little joke there at one point. Remember the when I when you say Adam's family, I don't know about you, but I hear that music. And then you've got the 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 snaps the snapping of the fingers, they brought that back. Not the music, uh, but the snapping of the fingers. There's this one scene. I won't spoil it, but <laughs> when I saw the snapping, it's like, oh, I see what you did there. I love these little inside jokes. Um, and then um, what I what I like about Wednesday's character and also about the overall tone of the of the series is that it is dark. It's sometimes even a bit scary. But it's never dark in a in a moral uh, sense, even though <laughs> Wednesday does some terrible things. But it's never because she's malicious. It's because she's socially awkward and she just uses the norms that she grew up with in this very kind of weird, dark family. And then she just applies that to the people around her, not really realizing that for normal people, this is kind of outrageous. And I like that combination of darkness and at the same time, this lightheartedness. Again, it's the perfect balance. I don't know how they did it, but they they pulled it off. And I think those are all the reasons why Wednesday is such a surprise hit for Netflix. Let me know what you thought and what you if you're currently watching it and if you're not watching it, then don't waste any time. This is one of the reasons that you still are subscribed to Netflix. <laughs> Catholics rock! It's time for a quick visit to the Peculiar Bunch, and this is the place where I talk about everything you always wanted to know about Catholics, but you are afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? And to stay a little bit in the Adams Family vibe, let's talk about ghosts and ghost stories. Should you believe them? Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. This is actually uh, my attempt to answer a question of one of my patrons. Um, in, in On the Discord server, we have this uh, faith questions section where people can just ask anything they want to know, and then well, I, I may look up some information and talk about it here on the show. And so the question was, I've, in, in previous episodes of this show, I've been talking about, uh, about heaven and purgatory and hell and how the Catholic Church considers that uh, to be not, not really places where you go, but more states of your soul like a very very short summary is heaven is if your soul is 100% open to God's love nothing not even like the faintest scars are left of of sin um, and it's being completely filled with God's love that's that's what heaven is purgatory is when you are open to God 
but there is still a lot of scar tissue and that needs to heal before you can fully embrace God's love or before he can fully embrace embrace you. He's, he's waiting for you. He's opening his arms, but you're still reluctant to go to the Father's house in a certain way. That That's purgatory. And then you've got hell, which is basically the state of the souls that are created to be eternal. So it's it's an eternal state, um, timeless also. Out of So your 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 de- final decisions are going to be really final for the rest of eternity. Um, but it's, it's a soul that is 100% close to God, who does not want to receive God's love. So this is why God does not send people to hell because, first of all, hell is not a place. But also, God is not the one who sends people to hell. People themselves, because of their free will, have the hopefully theoretical possibility to 100% close themselves off to, to love. And that will turn this life already into, into hell, um, let alone for eternity. So what if that's kind of what happens to us when, when we die... What about ghost stories? What about these stories where where uh, deceased people appear and are haunting houses and mansions and scare us or, or sometimes visit us to give us a message? What about all these stories of people that um, uh, have have seen their their loved ones in a... Was it a dream? Was it real? Uh, there, there are so many uh, stories, and ha- there have been stories for centuries of, of the deceased appearing uh, to the living and even kind of roaming the earth. Is, so is that purgatory was the question or is it something else or is it just make-believe? Is it nonsense? Well, as usual, the, the, my, my response is, is nuanced. Uh, first of all, uh, let me start by saying that I am very skeptical normally. Um, I I love science. I'm very critical towards even some of the traditions in my own church where I'm always like, yeah, but maybe there's another there's another explanation for that, you know. And uh, our mind is so incredibly complex, and uh, the, the the whole the way our brains work, the chemistry of our brains, the, the we we can we can imagine things. We can see things and we totally think it's real and yet it's just a result of our you know brain chemistry being messed up or trauma manifesting itself or whatever so there's so many natural explanations for things that in the past would have been qualified as miracles or um supernatural events i'm always uh, very, very careful to say something, oh, but I totally believe that that is real and that truly happened. I'm more like, well, well, maybe one day we'll be able to explain this. So, so just trying to explain to you where I'm coming from. So when it comes to ghost stories, I'm usually very skeptical. And I remember in my first parish, uh, uh, my, uh, my backyard was basically a graveyard. So there was a small garden, and then you would go through uh, through a wooden door, and you would be literally standing among the, the tombstones. And uh, the, the garage where I had my car was actually a small path. I, in order to go to the garage, I had to uh, drive through over a path and then get out of my car and open the garage door um, and put the car and then and walk alongside the graveyard in the dark, to my to my back door 
And <laughs> parishioners often ask me, aren't you afraid when you arrive in the middle of the night? And then uh, when you wake up, but like my bedroom was also at the back of the house. And it, I, uh, they were uh, that would so scare me and spoo- be so spooky to have a, a graveyard right next door. And I always said, no, I really, I don't think I've ever been afraid on a graveyard. It doesn't scare me. Now, <laughs> I have to stipulate that I don't watch horror movies. It's just not my genre. So maybe I, I'm just not exposed to scary what-if uh, stories. But I've never be, been afraid of that kind of stuff. And maybe it's also because I'm usually quite skeptical and quite rational. Like, hmm, well, why? That's just all our imagination. However, however, there are uh, um, many occasions in the biblical stories, uh, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, where they these stories do talk about deceased people, the spirits of people appearing to the living. Even in the New Testament, when Jesus dies, uh, there are, uh, in, in one of the Gospels, it's, it's uh, told that the, 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 the deceased ri- would rise from their graves, and <laughs> there are apparitions at, uh, at times in these stories. Um, so what do I make of that? Well, it's all, if I approach this as a theologian, I would say, if God created us, and created angels, and is able as is the source, the cr- creator of everything that lives and breathes. Not just what we see and can touch and can measure, but also of pure spirits like angels, or mixed forms like we. We are both spirit and and physical body. Then why wouldn't God be? Why would I tell God that it, it's not possible for Him to to allow? some of these spirits to manifest themselves to us. Now, how does that work? How can spirits manifest themselves? Um, their theologians don't have answers to that. They can basically say, well, it's certainly not that. For instance, St. Augustine, who was a, and still is, considered to be one of the great thinkers of the Catholic tradition, or Christian tradition, um, is, uh, was very skeptical when it comes to ghost stories. He basically wrote we shouldn't believe in ghosts uh thomas aquinas is also a very renowned renowned uh uh, theologian and uh definitely one of the theological pillars of of modern theology he said well i don't know why why wouldn't that be possible he also talks about angels so how is it possible in the biblical stories that angels appear to for instance the virgin mary or to joseph or anyone else if if angels are pure spirits how does that work how can they manifest them? spirits are not physical so how can they see angels um, and then he has a couple of theories which are kind of a bit artificial and a bit contrived but at least he's trying to think it through he takes it as a fact that well we have these stories so if we take that as a point of departure how could we how how can we rationalize that occurrence um so in theology there is a bit of an openness now and, and of course the the big thing in theology is not so much the question how can this happen but theology always wonders about 
why? Why would this happen? Why would God allow that? Why would God allow this, the spirits of this, the deceased to appear to us, to give us messages, to warn us, to maybe protect us? Um, asking the question is answering it in a certain way. It is maybe because God knows that that we are very sensitive to the advice of people that came before us, that we maybe it will <laughs> shock us and and uh, and wake us up and prevent us from from making the same mistakes over and over again. A lot of the ghost stories that we tell one another actually have that usually that message. It's never just a go- good ghost story. It's not just a story about scary stuff. Good ghost stories are always stories that have a message. Think of of uh, Scrooge, uh, you know, the famous story of this very rich person who doesn't want to help the poor, and is all, it's all about him. And then the spirit of Christmas or this ghost shows him. <laughs> the consequences of his behavior, and then it, he converts, he changes his lifestyle. And a lot of the ghost stories have that particular uh, aspect in it. Um, so ghosts are allowed to sometimes, in one way or another, manifest themselves to us uh, because God wants to help us, wants to guide us. Um, so what about the scary ghost stories, the haunted houses, the... Well, as as much as there are good spirits, spirits of people that are in heaven, uh, are filled with God's love, this, you also have the spirits of the people that are in purgatory, that are still suffering because they desire to be with God, and at the same time, they feel the pull, but they're still holding back themselves, and that creates tension, and that's the suffering in purgatory. And then you've got the souls of the of the, the damned, the, the the people that have closed themselves completely to God. So maybe those um, scary stories um, are told to warn us that. Uh, the souls of those who close themselves off to God's love are only capable of doing evil and about scaring us and uh, about making us desperate and maybe sometimes trying to convince us to do the bad thing. Um, uh, Satan and his helpers, the other fallen angels, uh, have this tendency that we read about in the Bible <laughs> of trying to lure other people or other, um, not spirits, because they make one decision at one point uh, in, in existence, but definitely us who live in, in the fabric of time, and they can, they can take their time in a certain way to, to try to subvert us from, from loving God and loving our neighbor um, and by choosing evil, uh, kind of, ratifying their own evil choices, maybe. What I want to conclude is, should we believe in ghost stories? I would definitely advise everyone to, to be rational. Um, uh, even So in many cases, there will be natural explanations. <laughs> we have psychiatrists and psychologists that can tell you uh, about th- these weird things, these tricks that our mind can can play, uh, and and sometimes even with multiple people at once. You know, there's these psychological effects of, of entire groups that are thinking that they saw some something, but it never happened. So definitely, always have an open mind 
when it comes to the natural explanations for phenomena like that. And then for the the rest of the ghost stories, I would say um, it's certainly possible theologically that God allows this to happen. But what's much more important is to ask yourself, why would God allow this to happen? What is the message of this ghost story? What can I learn from it? How can this spirit help me to do the right thing? Even if it's an evil spirit that is trying to scare me, it can still scare me into doing the right thing, right? So um, that is the most important question to ask yourself. What does this story tell tells me? How, how any story is told to affect us in a, a certain way, to influence the way that we handle life in you know, outside of the stories that we tell one another. And, and so if you want to really learn from these ghost stories, ask yourself, how does it affect me and what am I going to do with this story? Speaking of stories, it is time to talk when about you books. When expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night, the packet, the extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? It's time to party because for the first time, since I started reading this year, I am ahead of schedule on my self-imposed Goodreads book challenge or reading challenge. I vowed to read 100 books, and I'm now actually two books ahead, <laughs> which is pretty cool. How that is possible, because last week I was still three books behind on my reading list, is because I had a very quiet week. Um, it's a week of recovery. I had a mild injury during running training last Saturday, so I had to take it easy. I also had a few nights where I didn't sleep that well, so uh, during the days I'm, I'm pretty tired. And instead of kind of pushing myself, uh, I know that it's maybe sometimes it's better to just take some extra rest. And so I deliberately um, kind of turned off the screens that I normally surround myself with, and I just nestled into a nice uh, armchair to read and to read and to read and to read. So I wrote, I read one, two, three, four, five, six books. So one book per day. Um, and I'm just going to listen to you and tell you a little bit about them. But I want to highlight one amazing, amazingly funny book that made me laugh so much and one book that made me cry and was so sad. So I read Broken in the Best Possible Way by Jenny Lawson, Stephen King's A Good Marriage, and uh, another small book that he wrote uh, called Drunken Fireworks. It's actually two books. The Twins of Auschwitz by Eva Moses Kaur, The Deep by Rivers Solomon, Woodrow on the Bench by Jenna Bloom, and I'm Going to Live, or in Dutch, uh, Ik ga leven, by Lali Gül, uh, um, writer, uh, female writer of Turkish uh, descent. So what was the funniest book that made me laugh so much? It is Jenny Lawson's book, Broken in the Best Possible Way. I've already reviewed uh, another book that she wrote earlier this year. Jenna, Jenny Lawson um, is someone who has an amazing talent to, uh, to write the most outrageous things. She's uh, 
suffering from a, a, a number of mental issues, one of which is that she is very much ADD, uh, and also in her writing style. So she can start a story, and in the middle of that story, she she goes into uh, this, this rabbit hole, and it's so hilariously funny, and then completely loses track of what she was first sharing, and then she ultimately probably rereads her notes and gets back to the original story that she wants to tell. And, and so every time you read, there are these little side stories that she tells and they're so incredibly funny and quirky and she's got a, just a crazy mind it's it's so outrageously funny sometimes it's a bit uh, you know it's not for kids the the kind of humor but it's always so outrageous i mean i mean i was laughing out loud all the time while reading this book but jenny uh, lawson also is suffering from severe depressions um and she has suffered from mental health issues for most of her life and she's been in therapy for most of her life and and um, so she she goes from these moments of just being this very cheerful communicative kind funny uh woman and 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 wife and mother to uh, uh someone who who explores the depths of depression and darkness and where where no light shines and but she talks very honestly about that aspect of her life as well and that is a very interesting combination someone who is at the same time opening her heart and she's extremely honest um and thereby i think doing something about the taboo that still um is associated with with mental health issues um but but she also it alternates it with so much humor and so much joy that um, it corrects your idea that people who suffer from depression are just depressive people or depressing people, and that well, you know, we don't want to, we we don't know exactly how to relate to people who are suffering from mental illness because it kind of scares us a little bit. It is so difficult to someone who is in really uh, submerged in in a depression can be extremely hard to reach, and that makes us feel. Ex- very powerless and and insecure. Um, it doesn't help to tell someone who is depressed to say, "Oh, well, cheer up! Uh, tomorrow will be a better day." Just you know, whistle while you walk or while you work, and always look at the bright side of life. None of that works, and and that makes us feel very small when we're confronted with mental health issues. And so we tend to sometimes step away a little bit, maybe even ghost people that are suffering from mental health issues. Um, but Jenny Lawson uh, can't talk about it because it's in, it's in this broader context of the full person that she is. Someone is never just their mental health issue. A person is so, has so many dimensions, so many characteristics. And I think that, that her, her books are, are such a, a, I think she's such a great advocate for, uh, to, sh- to show that, even if you suffer from mental health issues, if you suffer from depression, you can still be someone who is extremely uh, relatable and and can bring joy in this world. And so, um, yeah, this this second book was was just as good as the first one that I've read. Um, I can highly recommend it. The saddest book in this list of books that I read this past week was uh, 
a book that wasn't really written by Eva Moses Kaur, but told to a ghostwriter, and it's called The Twins of Auschwitz. Eva Moses Kaur, uh, deceased a couple of years ago, was one of uh, a twin, um, how do you say that? So she had a twin sister as well, identical twins, and uh, she's Jewish, and her parents were Jewish, uh, and when the Second World War broke out, her parents and these two kids were deported to Auschwitz. And when they arrived in Auschwitz, they were separated by from her parents. Um, and it's only later that she discovers why. It's because of Joseph Mengele. Uh, this is infamous... Um, Nazi doctor who was experimenting, among other things, on twins, trying to learn by basically doing horrible things to these kids. He would inject them deliberately with lethal diseases to see if one twin may be healed from it and the other one may die. And he would just do the most horrible things. He would... Uh, uh, he would inject the blood of the one twin in the in, in the veins of the other, stuff like that. Completely not scientific at all, just horribly cruel. And uh, uh, he killed so many kids. I don't know the numbers, but it's just horrifying. Um, and his and this is a this really happened. This sounds as something straight from a horror movie. Or, you know, you've got the kind of Nazi doctor type interrogator in, in Star Wars Andor at one point. And, you know, we all have the comedic version of this German doctor. Let me just try out this little thing. Just come here, girl, and I will now cut off your finger and then try to grow it back. And uh, no, it, this, this happened. And it's so, it's actually something we shouldn't laugh about. And it's, 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 it's too horrific even for parody. And so she talks about her time at Auschwitz and what happened to her and her sister, how she survived and how when she came back, that wasn't the end of their suffering. There was still so much uh, discrimination, so much suffering, so much pain, Um it's a harrowing story and such a stark reminder of what happens when, when we forget that people are people, that everybody has, a, in a certain way, as a child of God, a divine dignity. People are sacred. Every, every life is sacred. And, and then what the Nazis did was diabolical because it destroyed life and especially very vulnerable life and we should learn from that and when i hear in the news that anti-semitism is on the rise that there are huge groups of people that are uh, that are praising hitler and and talking about the nazis as if they should have won the war and stuff like that i'm thinking read books like this we need to keep telling these stories and thank god there are witnesses that have shared what they went through so that we learn from it if you sometimes hear about what the russian soldiers uh, some of them have been doing in in ukraine in the areas where they um where they took over uh 
it's almost a, re- a, a, a repetition of what happened during the Second World War, and it's incomprehensible. It's, it's one of these things that make it so hard to go for the easy explanation that, well, you know what, everybody is going straight to heaven. How can God not love everyone? And it's like, you know what? History shows us how evil people can become, how they can do the total opposite of what God does and what we see Jesus do. Shouldn't there be at least the hypothetical option of someone completely refusing love and acting until the very last moment in 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 opposition so hell we should definitely talk about it as something that is be- only becomes a reality not because of god but because of us we create hell with our choices and the way that we treat each other we are able to make life hell for others as the nazis did in the second world war and it's happening now still in the wars that are currently fought. And so if we can create hell, then we're also able to do the opposite. And that's where it's important for us to learn from history and to change our behavior and the way that we treat one another so that we don't repeat the sins of our fathers in a certain way. And we don't repeat, keep repeating the horrors of the past. Because God is crying when he sees that we create hell. Um, and he wishes that he could prevent us from, from going there. But he gave us freedom. And so he will have to let us go as a consequence of this, this great but also dangerous gift of freedom that he gave us. And he's hoping and he's doing everything he can to prevent us from from perpetuating hell. Um, so there you go. That's why that was one of the saddest and most difficult books that I read um, this past week. All right, time to change the mood here. <laughs> Let me take you for a second to my kitchen where I do experiments with all sorts of recipes. And I saw this uh, this thing that looked too good to be true on a TikTok video where you could make your own chips in the microwave oven. Uh, potato chips or crisps, as they call them in the UK. And as you know, I, I kind of like Potato chips, I cannot really eat that uh, too much of them because it uh, it upsets my stomach, always does without fail. Um, but when I saw this do-it-yourself recipe, mm, I was like, let me try that out. That sounds like something a lot healthier than, than you know, the snacks that you buy at the supermarket. The idea was you, you take a, a reset potato, so it's kind of a firm potato, And you use a mandolin or a very sharp knife, cut it into very, very thin slices, and then you dry them as much as possible with a paper towel. Once you dried them off as as best as possible, you put them in a bowl, you add uh, oil, olive oil or, you know, um, and you make sure that all the the chips are are coated in, in oil. And then you take a plate, a regular porcelain plate, and you also uh, make sure that it is um, 
covered in oil. So it, it's not the healthiest thing because there's a lot of oil involved in this recipe, but I, I just wanted to see what, it, what happened. And then you put all these slices in circles on the plate. And then you add a bit of salt. That's all. Just some salt to cover. Uh, and then you put it in the, in the microwave for, according to the video that I saw, just a couple of minutes. And then they should come out super crispy and you could just crunch on them. They would make this crunchy sound and they were like perfect. So I, that's what I tried. And I put them in a microwave and after four minutes, I was like, oh, let's give it a try. And I tried to pick up one of those chips and they were completely soggy and just not at all what I, what I saw in the video. So I was like, maybe give it a little bit more time. So just three more minutes. Still a bit soggy, not firm, certainly not crispy. And then I added even more minutes. And then, yeah, they finally all the water that was in those chips was evaporated. And they were probably very crispy. The problem was they were glued to the plate, like literally that I couldn't tear them from the plate. And I ultimately had to use uh, a spatula and use a lot of force to scrape them from the plate, destroying the plate by <laughs> in the process, <laughs> by the way. And then, yeah, actually, the, the, the little bits and pieces that I was able to pry off that plate, they were crunchy. And they did taste like potato chips. But... If I have to use my microwave for 10 minutes, use a lot of oil, um, having to, to destroy the plate itself in the process, I think that those chips are actually a way more expensive than just buying them in the supermarket. So this is a recipe that I cannot and will not recommend. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? plug it in it's going to say hey i see you plugged in a new device and it's going to load in the appropriate drivers you'll notice that this scanner built whoa well all your technology stuff it just ends in disaster but there is one more thing all this technology stuff ends in disaster that is a bit gloomy but maybe appropriate for the topic that I wanted to talk about today which is chat GTP it was all over the news it's this service where you can sign up for free at least for now because it's still in development and you feed it phrases you tell it what to do and it's similar to the artificial intelligence uh, revolution that we've witnessed earlier this year when it comes to art where you, there are uh, services where you can just type in just uh, paint a, a, a Catholic procession on Mars. This is literally something that I fed into the software. And then it returns various paintings in different styles. And you can even specify, just show me this as a stained glass window or in the style of Rembrandt, and it will actually do something that's pretty amazing. Um, we've seen this technology improving in the span of just a few months. And I thought that that was already pretty spectacular, but now with chat GTP, it gets even better. It is so incredibly 
powerful and scary. It's literally just look up some examples yourself with Google or this. Some people even say this could be the end of Google. Because if you type in a question in Google, like how do I prepare microwave chips, it will give you just a hundred websites. And then you have to manually go through this and this and this. I don't think this is going to work. I don't have a microwave this big, etc. With Chat GTP, there is so much knowledge that it has uh, amassed over the past, I don't know how long they've been feeding this algorithm. Um, but it goes all the way to 2021, so don't ask it about the recent news. But you could just type in a question, like show me or tell me how to make microwave potato chips uh, that don't stick to the plate and tell it to me as if I were a five-year-old and do it in rhyme, in the style of Shakespeare, something like that. And it will actually churn out right there in a few seconds an entire an entire text, which reads very well. There are only a few things that make you uh, see that maybe this is not written by a human, but it's almost flawless. And not only can it produce text, it can also produce code, computer code. There are programmers that have tested this out. It's like just um, use Python to write a script to do this and this and this, and then it would produce actual executable code and then they tried out the code and they fed it back into the machine. Here's this piece of code. Get the errors out. It does this and I wanted to do that. And then it will do an improved version of the code, which will then work. It's insane. It can write songs. I tried it out the other day. I was asking it to explain the Eucharist, the, the meaning of Eucharist to children in rhyme. Um... Yeah, to to I said it to explain it to an eight year old as a as a poem, and it it produced this this entire poem, like five or six paragraphs, and it was actually pretty good. I was like, wow, it I I don't think I have the, did I did I copy the text? It, I was so but anyway, there was a few minor theological problems, but considering that this was an explanation for an eight-year-old child, I'm thinking, you know what? I think that most priests probably would do a worse job than this computer. It's insane. So, I think this is revolutionary technology. Um, a lot of technology watchers are predicting that this will this technology will take over uh, copywriting because you can ask it to give you the plot of a of a horror movie and then it will just create a perfectly fine story and then you can work you can use that as a basis to work on but if so for instance in in the news industry there are a lot of news stories that are just about mundane things, like uh, Team X played against Team Y, and the score was this and that. You could just feed that into the AI and say, just write me a news article about it, and it will do per that perfectly, which will save, would save so much time. And so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this is going to take over a lot of the blogosphere. Um but that there are also very, very uh, dangerous aspects of this. 
Because, and the most important one is something that we've seen happening on social media time and time and again, and that's the closed loop. An algorithm can only learn from what is being fed into the algorithm. And so they have been analyzing all the chatter on all these different social platforms. But the thing is, these social platforms that we are using are optimized for maximum engagement to serve the advertisement industry. And this is why, for instance, Twitter has become such a cesspool in some cases of hatred and bigotry and racism because that creates engagement that, you know, the algorithm kind of, it's like a monster that grows when you feed it with stuff like that. Whereas the soft whispers of normal people, it just kind of floats to the bottom and the algorithm doesn't pick up on it. This is happening for Star Wars fans. What are the biggest Star Wars um, content creators out there? It's the, the haters. The people that, that hate everything about Star Wars and about Disney and about Kathleen Kennedy and just keep on ranting and ranting and ranting. Why? They're a minority, a tiny minority of the Star Wars fans. But the algorithm likes them so much because it creates engagement. People are getting upset about it. They, they react, they post, and they, can, they join the rant. It, it, it creates emotion. But what if we feed that into the algorithm of an artificial intelligence like ChatGTP? And then the algorithm will learn from that and will start to create content for social media that will follow the laws of that engagement algorithm, thereby creating a closed loop almost. This is how an algorithm can radicalize. So one of the reasons I think that they are offering this for, for free right now for us to experiment with is because then we kind of see it as something cool. It's like the art algorithm, the art um, uh, generators. It's, it's lovely to play with. It's, it's very addictive and it makes it fun. But at the same time, you can already tell with chat GTP that they have put some boundaries there. If you ask controversial questions or you ask the, the, the algorithm to write you something that is in one way or another kind of could be controversial linked to the, the hot topics that are enraging so many people right now, it, it will just refuse to do it for now. So, of course, they don't want us to associate this technology with, uh, you know, negative, negative emotions. They don't want to get negative press. But this is just the beginning. Bad actors in the future and also bad creators, like people that own this kind of technology, they can use this also for malicious purposes. Would that, should that be a reason to be afraid of this technology or to try to somehow stop it? No, of course not. Every technology in its core is, is neutral. It's how we use it that will determine its moral value. And, but I do believe that it is more and more and more important to educate people about the risks, about how to use social media, about what is healthy for us, what is good for our society. We have to have boundaries. Free speech absolutists... I think are wrong. They're playing with fire. 
And it's only a matter of time before things get out of hand. I'm not against freedom of expression, but I am for a society or societies that protect the vulnerable, even from people that think that they should be able to say and do whatever they please. It doesn't work like that. And we've seen situations in history, again, history is a good teacher, where you see that limitless uh, societies, where there are no moral boundaries, where you can do basically whatever you please, you see how those societies tend to auto-destruct Think about people who have all the money in the world, all the power. They can do whatever they want. But it's not necessarily always for the common good. And so as a society, and even I would say as a church, we need to speak out about this and help people and educate people to use these kind of new technologies for the common good, to help our brothers and sisters instead of for selfish purposes. And even in a way, all the monetization that is happening on YouTube and other social media. We have to be very, very careful because it can, it can make us miss the long-term consequences of how we use the technological advances that are possible right now. All right. Something to think about. Let me know your thoughts, as always. And um, follow me on social media. Uh, the newest platform that I dabble with is, of course, Mastodon, uh, which uh, quite a few people have migrated towards because of their disappointment with, uh, with other social platforms. Um, I'm Father Roderick on almost all those platforms. And, of course, you can find my videos on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Father Roderick. If you uh, liked what you heard, Consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash fatherodrick. Like and subscribe, and I will talk to you soon. And here is my final inspirational thought of the week. This one is by Maya Corrigan, an author. And she says, You are what you eat, and you are what you read. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And thanks for the privilege of your time. God bless. <laughs>